It is the afternoon of July 6th in Moscow. Two members of the Chika are approaching the German legation on Denizny Lane. One, Yakov Blumkin, carries a briefcase in which a Browning pistol is hidden. Both carry hand grenades. The Chika is the security organ of the Soviet. These two Czechists, Blumkin and his companion Andreev, are not Bolsheviks. Like many Czechists, they are left SRs. Blumkin is certainly not a Bolshevik. Most Bolsheviks prefer TU alcohol, but Blumkin is known to get drunk in cafes listening to the poetry of revolutionary and reactionary writers with equal rapture. He is, quote, poised and virile. His face solid and smooth-shaven, with a haughty profile, end quote. He is not above, on occasion, drunkenly brandishing a pistol in public. Blumkin and Andreev show their credentials at the door of the German legation. Their letters of introduction bear the forged signature of the Chika head, Felix Dzerzhinsky. They wish to see the German ambassador, Count Willem von Merbach Harf. According to Blumkin's own account, related to Victor Serge, Count Merbach's son, a lieutenant in the German army, is missing. Blumkin and Andreev gain access by claiming to have news of him. Count Merbach meets with the two Czechists in a downstairs room. An interpreter and a member of the legation staff are present. Blumkin opens his briefcase, saying, Look here, I have. He pulls out the Browning pistol and aims it at the German ambassador. This is Battle for Red October, a podcast about the Russian Civil War. This podcast is from the 1919 review. That's 1919review.wordpress.com. There you will find the text version of this episode, which includes images, credits, citations, etc. Sorry in advance for any names that may be mispronounced. When Yakov Blumkin drew a pistol and pointed it at the German ambassador, her was acting in the grand old tradition of Russian terrorism. Throughout the 19th century the Russian liberals, known as populists, tried to shake the Tsarist autocracy with assassination. The older brother of Lenin and the older brother of the Polish nationalist leader Józef Polsudski were both hanged for their roles in the same assassination plot. From the 1880s a new revolutionary tradition grew up in the Russian Empire, one that rejected what they called individual terror. The Marxists believed that it was necessary to destroy the system itself, not individual human lives. If you kill the figureheads of a system, the system would just find others, and use the violence as an excuse to bring in more repressive powers. The Bolshevik party were oriented to the working class and to its open, democratic methods of struggle, such as strikes and mass demonstrations. During the 1917 revolution, strike committees developed into Soviets and pickets developed into Red Guards. The revolution was an extension of working class methods of struggle. Meanwhile, as we have seen the right SRs had grown closer to the conservatives, while the left SRs appeared to move closer to the Bolsheviks. But neither left nor right SRs ever gave up on the bullet or the bomb. The old method of terrorism would rear its head in 1918, in events that set the course of the Russian Civil War. At the moment of the assassination, Soviet Russia was a multi-party Soviet democracy. In workplaces, in the fleets, in the Red Guard units, in the Chika and in the Soviet, Bolsheviks and left SRs worked side by side. As we have seen, in January the Bolsheviks were pleased to vote for Maria Spiridonova as their candidate for president of the Constituent Assembly. The Bolsheviks and the left SRs had even formed a coalition Soviet government in December 1917, a coalition which lasted for four months. There was mutual admiration as well as mutual distrust. 
The Bolsheviks had made the October Revolution. The left SRs had the ear of the rural toilers. But the left SRs had a romantic outlook, and to them the Bolsheviks seemed to embody a contradictory mixture of dogmatism and unscrupulousness. For their part, the Bolsheviks saw the left SRs as muddleheads, terrible at picking their battles. They were always wavering on the most fundamental principles, but proving stubborn on secondary matters. Wrong again, friend. There will be no revolution in Russia based upon the peasant. Read some Marx, man. The peasant is a petty bourgeois reactionary element and arch proponent of progress, as will be abundantly demonstrated when the proletarian revolution has taken place. It's ridiculous calling yourself socialist. You're anarchist. Why don't you admit it? The slogan piece, Bread and Land united the Bolsheviks and the left SRs. Let's look at each in turn, and what they meant for relations between the Bolsheviks and the left SRs. First of all, let's take a look at land. In power, the Bolsheviks delivered immediately on the land question, passing a decree that took over the land of the former nobility and the church and gave it to tens of millions of peasants. This was a colossal victory for the peasants. Over the next few years the number of farming households rose from 18 to 24 million and the average size of a farm increased. Young couples escaped from overcrowded multi-generational households to start their own farms and homes in late 1917 and well into 1918 the mass of peasants supported the revolution with enthusiasm. The coalition between the worker-based Bolsheviks and the peasant-based left SRs reflected this fact. The land question was the basis of the alliance. The rupture came over the other two-thirds of the slogan, peace and bread. So second, we're going to look at the question of peace. We have already looked, in part three, at the Brest-Litovsk Treaty. It was deeply controversial among the Bolsheviks, the left communist faction even printed its own journal opposing the treaty. But the left SRs were even more deeply opposed. They were determined to fight German imperialism to the end, even if they were driven out of the cities and up into the Ural Mountains. In March 1918 they walked out of government, putting an end to the Soviet coalition government. Even though they were not in the coalition, thanks to the democratic nature of the Soviet system they still held many high positions in the Soviet, the Red Army and the Chika. We have dealt with the Brest-Litovsk peace but we have not yet conveyed the full and terrible cost of it. Finland gained independence from Russia thanks to the revolution. In free Finland as in Russia, socialists took power with the mass support of workers. But a Finnish white army, aided by German volunteers and weapons, rebelled, seized power and crushed the revolution. It was all over before May 1918. Tens of thousands of Red supporters were shot. More were starved to death in prison camps. The scale of the bloodshed would have been terrible anywhere, but in a country of only 3 million people it was unbelievable. By way of comparison, years of revolution and civil war in Ireland, a country with a population of similar size, claimed the lives of around 6,000 people. Counter-revolution in Finland far exceeded that toll in just a few months. The Reds longed to intervene and help their Finnish comrades, but their hands were tied by the peace treaty. Workers in Russia could only stand by in horror while massacres unfolded just a short train ride away from Red Petrograd. They knew that if the White Guards won in Russia, they would suffer the same fate. Next the German army occupied Ukraine and the Baltic states. They began seizing food and carrying out mass executions. It seemed to be all happening again. It was another Finland. A revolution was being crushed right on the doorstep of Soviet Russia, and thanks to the treaty there was nothing they could do. Even after they resigned from government, the left SRs still cooperated with the Bolsheviks. But the gulf between the two parties widened over the question of bread. Lenin's slogan in early 1918 was, quote, suspend the offensive against capital, end quote. In the socio-economic as in the military sphere, the country needed a breathing space. Early on, 
the Communist Party favored slow and measured changes in the economy, the nationalization of the banks and major industries, and gradual intrusions into the vast private sector of the villages. The left communists argued for faster nationalization and more state control of markets, but they were soundly defeated in an internal party debate. But by early summer, the Communist Party as a whole had been forced, by war and hunger, to resort to the measures proposed by the left communists. According to the communist Rickoff, quote, nationalization was a reprisal, not an economic policy, end quote. The food crisis which had begun in 1914 was still getting worse. Warfare led to a breakdown in transport, and the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk cut off Russia from food-producing areas. But the most significant cause of the food crisis was the breakdown of industrial production. There was no shortage of food as such, but the peasants would not trade it for worthless paper money. They wanted manufactured goods. The cities had few to offer, due to all the upheaval and due to widespread sabotage by the old owners. Therefore, according to the dictates of the market, the cities would starve to death. But the communists were not inclined to accept the dictates of the market or the prospect of their supporters starving to death. By summer 1918 food detachments were descending on the villages, seizing any surplus grain to feed the cities. Many writers overlooked the important continuities between this food dictatorship and the food policies of the provisional government and even those of the Tsar adopted since 1914. But this went several steps further than any previous policy. Many peasants, especially the wealthier layers, saw the food detachments as an onslaught against their right to trade. The reaction was furious. Of 70,000 workers who joined food detachments, 7,000 of them were killed by angry peasants in 1918 alone. Quote, more than one Bolshevik commissar was found by his comrades in an abandoned barn, his belly slid open and stuffed with grain, end quote. Kulaks would wait in ambush for the food detachment members, sawn off rifles hidden in the folds of their shirts. The left SRs spoke for many peasants when they condemned the food dictatorship. The Bolsheviks, meanwhile, had moved the seat of government from modern Petrograd to medieval Moscow. And they had changed their name to the Communist Party, it is said that some peasants who did not keep up with the news were heard to remark, I supported the Bolsheviks, but I hate these communists. The conflict came to a head at the beginning of July. To the east, the Czechs had revolted and the Whites were on the march. To the west, the Germans occupied a vast stretch of territory. To the south, the Cossacks and the Volunteers were making steady gains. To the north, British forces landed at Murmansk on July 1. On the 2nd and 3rd, key cities fell to the Czechs. Throughout these days Count Merbach, the German ambassador, would sit in the Bolshoi theater observing sessions of the Soviet and would relay ever more arrogant demands from Berlin. Meanwhile the left SRs were active on the western border, shooting and bombing and agitating, trying to trigger a war between Germany and the Soviets. These were the political developments that placed Blumkin and Andreev in the legation on the afternoon of July 6, face-to-face with Count Merbach, the hated representative of German imperialism. By shooting him, they believed they would trigger a response from Germany, beginning a spiral into war. Blumkin pulls the trigger. Count Merbach flees into another room while the two members of staff dive under the table. Andreev throws a grenade after Merbach, but misses. Blumkin darts forward grabs the grenade before it can explode, and throws it again. It's on target. Count Merbach is killed. The explosion throws Blumkin out the window and into the street. He and Andrea flee in a getaway car to the Chika barracks on Pokrovsky Boulevard. This barracks is controlled by a Chika unit under a left SR named Popov. Popov is in on the conspiracy, and the barracks is a safe house for the assassins.
At first everyone assumes that the murder is the work of white guards or anarchists. Felix Dzerzhinsky, leader of the Chika, takes on the murder investigation personally. Dzerzhinsky is a lean Polish communist, his sunken toothless mouth is a souvenir of torture and severe trauma in Tsarist prisons. Dzerzhinsky is quick to find forged credentials at the murder scene bearing his own signature. Who would have access to such credentials? Not the anarchists or the white guards. For the first time, he begins to suspect left SR involvement. He goes straight to the Pokrovsky Boulevard, to ask the Czechist Popov to clarify the situation. He assumes it is safe. The initial reaction of Trotsky was to say, quote, it must be individual madmen and criminals who have committed this terroristic act, for it is impossible that the Central Committee of the Left SR Party can be mixed up in it, end quote. Dzerzhinsky's attitude is probably similar at this point. He and his personnel arrive at the Pokrovsky barracks and begin to search the place. But before they can find the assassins, they open a door to find the Central Committee of the Left SR Party in session. If Dzerzhinsky is shocked he didn't let it show. He demands that they surrender the assassins, the Left SR leaders respond that they take full responsibility for the killing of Murbach. Dzerzhinsky, though far outnumbered, declares the lot of them under arrest. He is immediately disarmed and captured. Meanwhile 30 minutes walk away the 5th Congress of the Soviets is in session in the Bolshoi Theater. Word has not yet arrived about the murder of Murbach. It is a brutal, fractious meeting. Roughly two-thirds of the delegates are Bolshevik, one-third left SRs, plus anarchists and others. Of the left SRs, one-third are workers, one-third peasants and one-third intelligentsia. They have been debating for hours. The Commissar for War Trotsky condemns the left SRs for agitating on the front lines, for trying to kill German soldiers and trigger a conflict. The delegates heckle him, yelling out, Kerensky. A left SR speaker lays out their position, it is impossible, quote, to tolerate the German marauders and hangmen, to be accomplices of those villains and plunderers, end quote. It is Maria Spiridonova who, around 4 p.m., arrives at the Bolshoi Theater bearing the news that Murbach has been murdered. Spiridonova was in on the plan, but most of the left SR delegates in the Bolshoi are blindsided. Meanwhile one or two thousand left SR fighters have gathered near Pokrovsky Boulevard. They attempt to seize key buildings, and they arrest communist and non-party Red Guards and Czechists. The communists immediately lock down the Bolshoi and imprison the left SR delegates. The Soviet government ministers meet and, quote, from a building in the Kremlin, we saw shells, fortunately, only a few landing in the courtyard, end quote. During the night the left SRs seize the post office and send out a telegram to the provinces. Quote. Count Murbach, torturer of the Russian toilers, friend and favorite of, Kaiser, Wilhelm, has been killed by the avenging hand of a revolutionary in accordance with the resolution of the Central Committee of the Left SR Party. German spies and traitors demand the death of the Left SRs. The ruling group of Bolsheviks, fearing undesirable consequences for themselves, continue to obey the orders of German hangmen. End quote. An order to the telegraph workers, signed by an SR maximalist, goes further, quote, all cables with Lenin's, Trotsky's and Sverdlov's signatures as well as all cables from counter-revolutionaries which are dangerous to Soviet power in general and the left SR party currently in power in particular are to be withheld, end quote. In the dead of night Vasides, the leader of the Latvian rifles, is summoned to the Kremlin.
Comrade, says Lenin, can we hold out until morning? It is by no means clear that they can. The left SR forces consist of their own combat units, plus 600 Czechists under the command of Popov, plus a few anarchists and Black Sea sailors. Most of the fledgling Red Army are at the front facing the German threat. Whoever else can be spared is at the Volga to the east, fighting the Czechoslovaks and the Whites. Forces loyal to the Bolsheviks in Moscow at that moment consist of four Latvian rifle regiments and a force of Hungarian communists, former prisoners of war led by Belakun. You must note besides that we have tried the utmost of our friends. Our legions are brimful, our cause is ripe. The enemy increaseth every day. We at the height are ready to decline. There is a tide in the affairs of men, which taken at the flood leads on to fortune. Omitted all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. On such a full sea are we now afloat, and we must take the current when it serves, or lose our ventures. Insurrection is dangerous. You don't know who is going to rally to your side until after you've stuck your neck out. Then it's too late to call it off. If you back down, your plans will be discovered and you'll face the consequences anyway. Insurrections therefore often hedge themselves in defensive political cover. Even the October Revolution employed such cover. The left SR uprising of July 1918 attempts to do the same. The order to the telegraph workers referring to the left SRs as currently in power is unusually bold. The resolution of the left SR Central Committee is more typical. Quote, we regard our policy as an attack on the present policy of the Soviet government, not as an attack on the Bolsheviks themselves. As it is possible that the latter may take aggressive counteraction against our party, we are determined, if necessary, to defend the position we have taken with force of arms, end quote. In October the defensive cover deceived and demoralized the government. But in July 1918 the defensive cover deceives and demoralizes the insurgents. The left SR fighters don't know what they're doing. There are high-ranking left SR Red Army officers in the vicinity of Moscow with large forces at their command. But they who refuse to join. Vasidis himself, who has showed up at the Kremlin to command the forces arrayed against the uprising, is a left SR. The next morning sees many left SR fighters pursued to the Kursk railway station. They abandon armored cars and weapons as they flee. There is heavy fighting in the central Katai Gorod area of Moscow. The Latvians manage to get a 152mm howitzer up close to the left SR headquarters and they open fire at point-blank range. By noon the left SRs are defeated and Dzerzhinsky has emerged from the shell-scarred building. 300 are arrested and 13, all Czechists, are executed. Among those put up against a wall and shot for their role in the uprising and the killing of Murbach is a young man called Alexandrovich, a left SR and deputy to Dzerzhinsky. The poet terrorist Blumkin, who threw the fatal grenade, has meanwhile fled to Ukraine, where he works in the guerrilla underground against the German occupation. In the aftermath of the left SR uprising the party is destroyed, not by repression but by its being utterly discredited. Trotsky describes the left SR leaders as isolated intellectuals surrounded by a yawning void, and claims they were egged on by bourgeois public opinion. But he also declares that 98% of left SRs are blameless. The communists forgive any left SR who renounces the actions of their central committee. Those who openly support the uprising and the murder of Murbach are not even arrested, though they lose their jobs.
The party splits. Many join the Communist Party. Others attempt to rebuild the left SRs as a party of legal opposition, but make little headway. Others still go underground to continue the armed struggle. From time to time as the civil war rages on ex-left SR groups and individuals will come center stage again for a while. Months later the SR Central Committee members are put on trial. Maria Spiridonova and her comrade Sablin are each sentenced to a year in prison. The other committee members are all on the run, they get three-year sentences except for the Czechist Popov, who is condemned to death. But he joins the anarchist Nestor Makhno, and we will hear of him again in a future episode. But in the days immediately after the rising, anxiety still hung over the Kremlin. Colonel Mira VF, whom one historian refers to as, quote, effectively the commander-in-chief of the Red Army, end quote, was a left SR. He was currently at Kazan on the Volga, facing the Czechs. Lenin's worries were soothed after a friendly exchange of telegrams. Muraviev renounced his left SR membership, and Lenin publicly declared complete confidence in him. This was, after all, the same soldier who defended Petrograd from a Cossack onslaught in November 1917. The same officer who won the Battle of Kiev in January 1918. He was as dependable as anyone. But on July 9, Muraviev rose in revolt against the Bolsheviks and sailed down the Volga with a thousand soldiers, declaring himself, quote, the Garibaldi of the Russian people, end quote. He called on the Red Army and the Czechoslovaks to join forces in a crusade against Germany. His thousand men disembarked and seized the town of Simbirsk. Quote, on the night of the 10th of July communist rule on the Volga, and perhaps ultimately in all of Russia, hung by a thread, end quote. But a young Bolshevik worker and Soviet official, a Lithuanian named Varekis, set an ambush for Muraviev. The commander's body was left with five bullet holes and several bayonet wounds. The revolt collapsed. But the damage was done. Two weeks later Varekis and his comrades were chased out of Simbirsk in a panic by a force of just 1,500 Czechs and Whites. We saw in Part 5 that the Allies and the White Guards had laid plans for a series of revolts encircling Moscow. In the days following the Moscow Rising there was a series of failed revolts in provincial towns. The most serious was at Yaroslav, a town of 100,000 on the Volga and on the railway line between Moscow and Arkhangelsk. The insurgents were the Fatherland and Freedom Defense League an armed band of officers led by an SR terrorist named Boris Savinkov. They got away with their coup because the local Red Regiment declared neutrality. The local Mensheviks did the same, no doubt they were embittered by a recent dispute in which the local Bolsheviks had gone to the lengths of shutting down the Soviet and arresting the Menshevik delegates. But help from the Allies at Arkhangelsk did not come, and the local workers and peasants gave no aid to the Yaroslav insurgents. The Red Army closed in and bombarded the town with artillery for 12 days. The Whites surrendered on July 20, after which the Red shot around 400 of them. Victor Serge notes that it was the first serious episode of the terror. 40,000 of the population of Yaroslav were left homeless due to the destruction caused by the battle. The left SR uprising marked the tragic end of Soviet democracy, though that was not obvious or inevitable at the time. Here we have to get ahead of ourselves to draw out the significance of what had happened. The Communist Party had never called for a one-party state and never formally instituted one until they reluctantly agreed to a temporary ban on factions and opposition parties in 1921, a measure they would not have even considered in 1918 or 1919. In the early period of the revolution they tolerated any party that did not take up arms against them, and even some that did take up arms. But after the left SR uprising, the Soviets were dominated by a single party. It was a one-party system de facto but not de jure. There were several causes for this. 
The SRs and Mensheviks were kicked out of the higher Soviet bodies from June 1918, because they had thrown their lot in with armed counter-revolution. The SRs to a greater extent than the Mensheviks. They still operated freely in local Soviets and Congresses, and later the bans were cancelled. The left SRs were not banned, but discredited by their own actions in the July uprising. They might have gained some traction if they had risen up on behalf of the peasants, with a program of opposition to Bolshevik food policy. But they rose up for the sake of the war, which nobody wanted. In the years after their failed insurrection, they must have cursed themselves. Their party had represented the last chance at a Soviet coalition, but they had chosen the wrong hill to die on. There was no institution of a one-party state. You will search in vain through the writings of Lenin and Trotsky at this time for defenses of a one-party state. On the contrary, you will find numerous references to plans for a multi-party Soviet democracy. What happened was, in short, that those who supported armed counter-revolution were kicked out of the Soviets, and while loyal opposition groups had a fair and square chance of winning mass support, they failed to do so. Most of the rural population turned cold on the Communist Party in the year 1918. But they found no other party to rally around, and they still hated the whites a lot more. The urban working class in general remained staunch supporters of the Communist Party, even under the most terrible conditions. But as we will see, at times Mensheviks and SRs gained traction in the cities. What happened to Yakov Blumkin, the warrior poet and assassin of Count Murbach? By April 1919 the civil war was raging in its full fury. Blumkin was arrested in Ukraine by the Reds. Trotsky spoke at length with him. Maybe their interview was a fierce debate on the key questions of the Russian Revolution, peace, bread, land, freedom. Or maybe the end of the World War had narrowed the political distance between the Bolshevik and the left SR. Whatever was said, we know that Trotsky convinced Blumkin, won him over to the communist point of view. Not only was Blumkin amnesty, he joined the Chika and became an intrepid communist agent in Persia, Mongolia and elsewhere. His former comrades in the left SR party tried to kill him as a traitor. While he was recovering in hospital from the attempt, they tried again, throwing a grenade in the window. Blumkin repeated the trick he claimed to have pulled in the German legation in 1918, he picked up the grenade before it could detonate, and threw it back out the window. When the tide of revolution went out and Stalinist counter-revolution took hold, Blumkin was an early victim. In 1919 he was forgiven for taking part in an armed uprising and for trying to drag Russia into a war at a time when it barely had an army. But by 1931 a lot of things had changed. Trotsky had been in exile for several years. Blumkin, while on an official trip abroad, paid his old comrade a visit. For this crime, Blumkin was executed on his return to the Soviet Union. 